are in Jonah uh, chapter 2, and so you can be turning there. As you turn there, just a couple of quick things as we look into next Sunday and beyond. have a couple of missionary opportunities coming up for us to hear from and uh, just to reconnect with some of the missionaries that Baraka faithfully has supported, um, some for years and, and, and one more recently. But Walter Heaton will be speaking uh, next Sunday. He'll be preaching next Sunday morning, so that'll be good to hear from him. He's a brother that pastors a... Uh, doing church planning work in Croatia, and so make sure you're here, and uh, excited to hear from him. And then also, Ray and Marty Williams will be here at the end of the month at Carrion Dinner, which is the last day of the month, uh, January 31st, so this is our big potluck dinner we do once a month on Wednesday nights. If you're not in the habit of coming, uh, this would be a good way to start the year. And so on uh, the 31st, they were missionaries in Australia for years and have been Uh, forced to leave the country they could not get a visa renewed and so we get to hear kind of what their plans are as they move forward Uh, so those are a couple opportunities coming up and also we see we have a new member in the uh, the family here so thankful for that this is our birthday gift to uh, to Jody Parrish sitting up here so no (laughs) Uh, it's her birthday today and this is something that she's been wanting and and hoping for us for many many years to have a really quality piano she's a very skilled pianist and and so but this is not really her birthday gift but <laughs> it, the timing was was perfect so uh, but grateful for David Proxima and uh, Jody have both spent a lot of time and some others have been involved in that process of of researching and finding a piano and we're thankful that we get to get to hear it now so all right we're in Jonah 2 let's let's look there and let me begin I'm going to read in verse 17 of chapter 1 and then we'll go into chapter 2 Jonah 1 verse 17 And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. They surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Question to start our time this morning. Is this, is how should you respond when God stops you in your tracks? Maybe better, how do you respond when God does that? What do you, what do, you do when you've messed up and therefore your life is really a mess? What do you do when you've gotten yourself into a really bad situation because of sinful choices you've made and you're not sure how to get out? Sometimes our messes can be relatively minor. Maybe you've said something that you shouldn't have said to someone in your life, something that was 
unkind and hurtful or maybe false. Later you thought, man, I should not have said that. What would I have to do to clean this mess up that I've made? Maybe it's something like that. Or maybe it's something much, much more significant. Maybe you've created a real mess in your life because of some addiction. And you find yourself in, there there are physical, there are relational, maybe even legal troubles that you're in now because of that addiction. And you're thinking, is there any way out? Is there any way, any hope of getting out of this mess that I've made? Or maybe you made a mess of your marriage after years of neglect or arguing or unfaithfulness. And then you look around and you think, is there any way out of this mess? I don't mean out of the marriage, but is there any way out of this downward spiral that your life has been on? Is there any way to save this? Messes happen. Messes happen when we run from God. This is what has happened to Jonah. This is where we pick it up in Jonah 2. God gave him assignment, an assignment. Jonah didn't want to do it. So instead of going where God told him to go, instead of doing what God told him to do, he went the other way. And he ran in the opposite direction, away from the presence of the Lord, the text says, as if that's possible, as we just read a moment ago in Psalm 139 together. But we've been saying over the past couple of weeks, as we've started working our way through Jonah, that if we're honest about ourselves, if we really are searching, asking God to search our hearts, one of the things that we will confess, I think, is we are Jonah. We don't like everything that God tells us to do in the Bible. We don't like everything that God tells us to be in the Bible. We don't like everywhere that God tells us to go. And so in some way or another, in some way, shape, or form, we run from Him in our lives. And listen, It's possible to run from God even when you're not even moving. Because in the Bible, it doesn't just talk about those sins of commission where God says, don't do this, and you do it. That, That is one way in which we sin. But the Bible also recognizes those sins of omission where we fail to do what God wants us to do. So it could just mean not doing anything, not going anywhere. And either kind of sin, though, is a form of running, running from God. And so there's a sense in which all of us run from God at times. Maybe you're really actively running from Him even today. And he's, but, but, but here's the problem with that. We say, well, it's a big deal. It's, it's okay. No, here's the problem with that. We live in God's world. This is His world. And He's built into this world this principle that whatever a man sows, that will he reap. And so, so Scripture talks often about how difficult life will be, the kinds of messes that we make because of our ignorance of or disobedience to what God says. We make a mess of life. And so sin gets us into all kinds of jams and all kinds of different difficult situations, and, and it just makes a mess of things. We get into all kinds of messes because we're running from God. That's, that's the world that God has made, in which we live. So the question is, what do you do? When you've messed up and made a mess of your life. What do you do when God stops you in your tracks? When life just caves in on you because you've been running from Him? This is where Jonah 2 really helps us. Jonah 2 helps us answer some of those questions. If you've you've not been with us the last couple of weeks, let me just catch you up really quickly, see what's going on. 
Jonah was a prophet of God to the people of Israel. And the Lord came to Jonah and said this, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Well, Jonah didn't want to do that. And it wasn't because, as we said, it wasn't because he didn't like the food, it was because he didn't like the people. The problem with Nineveh was that it was in Assyria, and, and is, uh, the Assyrians were the dreaded enemies of Israel. And so Jonah, Jonah hated these barbaric Ninevites. And so he knew that to go there would probably mean one of two things. Either they would reject the message that he preached, and they would torture him and kill him, which is just standard for them. Or they might receive the message that he preached, and they would repent, and God would show mercy to them. Both of those he just hated the thought of. And so he didn't like God's word to him, so he didn't feel like obeying it, so he ran. And instead of going northeast to Nineveh, he went south to Joppa and boarded a ship heading far west to Tarshish, some, probably some 2,000 miles west in Spain, modern Spain. And his plan seemed to have worked. So the boat leaves port. He's sailing off into the sunset, and Jonah falls asleep in the bottom of the boat after a very stressful day of running from God. And everything seems to be working out great until, as we saw last week, verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So the pagan sailors that are with him leading this expedition, they, they, they panic and they start screaming to their gods for help and, and begging them to help them. And, and they start throwing all the car- cargo overboard to keep the boat afloat. And, and then in this final act of desperation, they cast lots to see uh, on who, who's, whose fault is this? On whose account has this evil come upon us? Verse 7. And, so they, uh, the, the, and the lot falls on Jonah. So they go wake Jonah up and they say, what, what, what have you done? Where are you from? And what's your occupation? And, and, and finally, what do we have to do with you in order to make the storm stop? And Jonah answers, you've got to toss me overboard, and it'll stop. And so reluctantly, after trying everything else, they, they finally throw him over the side of the boat into this raging sea. And when they do it, it becomes calm. This placid lake after throwing him into the water. I mean, just think about what that was like for these uh, sailors to witness this. He's unbelieving sailors. From the worst storm they've seen into, in their lives to smooth as glass. Good water skiing water. And uh, just just great. In an instant. Well, you see how they respond. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord. These pagan idolaters who are calling out to all their gods. No, now they feared the Lord. Yahweh. The God of Israel. The covenant keeping God of Israel. Exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That's their response. Now, what about Jonah? Well, we saw him when we left him last week. He's, he's in the water. He's dog paddling, trying to stay afloat in this calm water. And my mental picture last week that I thought was very humorous, as I looked at chapter 2 more this week, I think it probably wasn't very accurate. But anyway, because apparently the ship sailed off in the calm seas. Jonah's left bobbing in the water out there and... Eventually, certain he's going to drown. That was certainly his expectation. And this is, but this is one of those places. You come to those places in Scripture, think, if I were God, I would do this differently. <laughs> if I were, if I were God, there wouldn't be a Jonah chapter two. 
It would, it would just end. The story would end with Jonah getting tired of swimming and, and just can't keep himself up anymore. He's worn out and he goes under and drowns or maybe some shark comes and you know attacks him and eats him or something like that. And the lesson of Jonah would be, don't be disobedient like Jonah or else. And that period, end. But listen, the God who is a God of justice and righteousness, who won't allow his prophet to keep running from him without consequence, is also a God of incredible mercy and grace who also provides a way of escape. And so it is. I'm, while I would do that, I'm thankful that that's not what God has done. So verse 17, we read, started here a moment ago, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We read that and we know the story. He's in the belly of a fish. Just think about that. Just imagine seeing. Don't don't picture the kind of cartoonish versions of this story you've seen, where he's sitting there at a desk with you know a candle on the desk, and he's writing in his journal, writing this prayer out in this cavernous, mystical whale's belly. That's not it at all. Uh, From his prayer in this in this chapter, we see it seems that he was barely conscious when the fish swallowed him. He's drowning, he's sinking to the bottom of the sea, he's about to die, and then this fish swallows him whole. And so as he begins to regain consciousness, just imagine the horror of those first moments as he begins to understand what's happening, what's happened to him. It's probably pitch black. It's incredibly tight. He probably cannot move a muscle. He probably can't scratch his nose because he's probably just so wedged into the belly of this fish. The feel of the stomach lining pressing against his flesh, the irritation of the stomach juices and the acids that are just bleaching his skin, the smell, oh, smell, stuff fish eat in the stomach and acids, like being dropped down into a porta potty at Atlanta Motor Speedway or something. I mean, this, is, this would have been awful. It's probably cold, fish or cold-blooded creatures. So whatever the water temperature is, that's probably the temperature in there for three days. I realize as the days were counted, just like Jesus being in the tomb for three days, it it was a full day and then parts of two other days, and it may have been that, but okay, two days. One day and two half days. It's crazy. Now, critics of the Bible, maybe some of maybe you're here today, and this is how you're thinking. You, they read this story and they think that's impossible. <laughs> it just it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. There's no way this could happen. This proves that this Bible that you hold and you believe and you preach it's make believe because it just can't happen. Listen, as one who unapologetically, unapologetically believes that everything in this Bible is true, let me just say this isn't even on my top ten list of hardest things to believe in the Bible. <laughs> Start with creation, that God made everything in the universe by speaking a word in an instant. That's a little more difficult, I think. Or the virgin birth, or the resurrection of the dead. This isn't, this isn't even hard for God. If he wanted to, he could have furnished central heating and given him a Wi-Fi hotspot in there. I mean, he could have done anything. This is not, this is not hard for God. If I, so I'm not going to spend time today 
And maybe this is what you're expecting or hoping for, decipher, trying to decipher exactly how this happened, what kind of fish it was, the science behind it. And So I'm not going to try and convince you by sharing all these stories about, you know, survival stories of people being swallowed by fish and surviving a couple hours. I mean, there are those stories. And that, there's, there's articles, there's sermons that do that sort of thing. But to me, that's to miss the whole point. Uh, that, let me give you a quote from John Collenberger, a commentator on Jonah. He said, It is as foolish for the liberal to deny the possibility of taking the fish literally as for the conservative to attempt to identify the species of marine animal that could swallow and sustain a human being for three days and nights. Both slight the miraculous power of God. What the Lord did to save Jonah is not normal, nor are the other divinely engineered encounters in the book. Storms at sea are commonplace, but not storms that rise and fall instantaneously. Plants sprout and grow, but not overnight. Worms eat and destroy vegetation, but not within a morning. Great fish devour people, but do not sustain them and disgorge them alive onto the shore. So let's not get caught up in that circle of thought. Listen, the hardest thing to believe in this book is not the fish. That's not it. Not for me. The hardest thing to believe is that God would still care enough about this runaway prophet to provide a fish. The hardest thing for me is that there's a Jonah too. It's, it, beyond that, it's harder than believing this fish. It's harder for me to believe that God would care enough about people like the Ninevites who were so cruel and barbaric and so assaulted the people of God that he would extend grace to them rather than just consuming them in his wrath. That's harder to believe. And it should be harder for us. So what does Jonah do? What does he do when he's in this mess? What, what can we learn about this prayer, this psalm of Jonah to help us when we're stopped by God in our tracks? When we're living with the mess that has been made because of our sin. Three things this morning. First thing is this. Is we need to acknowledge the consequences of running from God. Acknowledge the consequences of running from God. So after Jonah had been in this fish for three days, he prayed. Now there are some that maybe don't agree with this, but the the text and the flow of thought, it seems to be that he lays there unmoving, stubborn for three days. And then he prays. And I just think that shows us the depth of Jonah's struggle. He's not immediately moved and thinking, oh, thank you, God, for this fish. This is wonderful. No, not it. I think he's in there. He's angry. He's bitter. He's furious about his, where he's at, and he's in the depths, and he just thinks he's going to die, and this is horrible, and it was horrible. It's only at the end of that time where he recognizes God's deliverance, God's hand in this. Then... After three days, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So much of this prayer, this psalm, is, is, is focusing on the price that Jonah paid for his disobedience. That's what we see, in, especially in these first seven verses. And so, he, yes, he's thankful in the end for God's deliverance of him. But in thanking God, he's recounting all these disastrous and horrific and horrible consequences of, of running from the Lord. And so just scan these, these first verses and see these descriptions. My distress, in verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol, verse 2, cast me. And notice in verse 3, it's, he says, you cast me into the deep. And say, that those sailors, they threw me in. No, he sees God's hand in this. 
cast me into deep, into the heart of the seas, the flood surrounding me. Waves and billows passed over me. I was driven away from your sight in verse 4. And the end of verse 4, there's an uh, interpretive issue here. My translation says, Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. And that may be exactly what's intended. It's also possible in the Hebrew that this could be translated, uh, How will I look again upon towards your holy temple? In other words, he may be saying he, he's terrified he's going to die, but not only that, that he's going to be lost forever. Waters closed in over me to take my life, verse 5. Deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped around my head. I went down in the pit, fainting away. What's going on here in the bulk of this prayer? Jonah's thinking about and seeing the price of his disobedience to God. He's learning why it's so dangerous to run from God. As one commentator said, uh, the, the belly of a fish is not a great place to live, but it is a great place to learn. And Jonah has some learning to do in this fish. He disregarded God's word, fled to Tarshish. Why? Because he convinced himself that his way was better than God's way. We talked about this. He convinced himself that doing what God wants is optional in your life. He convinced himself that he could do what he wanted and get away with it. He could go where he wanted to go, do what he wanted to do, be who he wanted to be, listen to the mamas and papas more than God. And the first thing Jonah needed and that God provided with this fish was to come face to face with the consequences of his running. This is what it costs. This is the mess that was made. God wanted Jonah to be convinced that running from him is not okay. It's not fun It's not better. It's not liberating. It's not an option. Running from God stinks. Quite literally in his case. Let's just say, friend, are you running from God today? By commission, by doing something that God has said not to do? By omission, by failing to do something that God wants you to do? Clearly in his word. What could this be? Maybe you're at odds with a brother or sister in Christ. You know what the Bible says about how we're to relate to one another. You know that you need to reach out to them, talk with them, try to be reconciled with them. But you don't like that idea. (laughs) You, You certainly don't feel like doing it. You've come to be at rest with that bitterness that lingers in your heart. So you avoid them, you go around them, you gossip about them. Are you running from him? Maybe God has placed someone in your life that, who doesn't know Christ. There's no maybe about that. He has placed someone in your life who doesn't know Christ. But maybe you, you know you should talk with them. You, you know you should be concerned for their soul. You know you should move toward them and reach out to them. But there's this grapefruit-sized knot in your throat. You can't speak or you don't speak. You've come up with dozens of reasons why you shouldn't talk to them right now about the Lord and and you're convinced anyway, regardless, they're not going to trust Christ anyway. Are you running from Him? Maybe you admit, yes, I'm running from God, but it's really not that bad. It's not that much, it's not that messy. I just say, wait. I hope you like the smell of fish. <laughs> I hope you're not claustrophobic. Uh, I don't mean that don't stay away from lakes, that's not my point. But you're, God will go to great lengths to convince you that running from him is a bad idea. 
great lengths. Maybe you're thinking, I've been running a long time, Justin. You have no idea. And I've made such a mess out of my life. There's just no way out at this point. It's too late. Listen, it's not too late. If you're, if you're willing to stop, if you're willing to repent, if you're willing to agree with God, to admit that the conclusions you've drawn about the acceptability of, of disobeying God and running from Him, that they're wrong. To say running, is, running isn't smart. It's not okay. It's not good. It's not fun. It's stupid. And it's sinful. And it's sad. If you're willing to say that, if you're at the place where you say running from God stinks. I don't want to do it anymore. The consequences are too terrible. There's hope for you. There is. If it's, it's, it's God's mercy that has brought you to the place of seeing how terrible it is and, and letting you admit that. And it's, that's, that's where we begin. Admitting the cons, acknowledging the consequences of running from Him. This is what Jonah is doing here. Regardless of what God had to use to get you to this point, brothers and sisters, regardless of how messy your mess is, regardless of how long it took you to get there, if you truly will admit what Jonah admits here, and see what he sees, that running from God stinks, and you want fellowship with Him, there's hope for you. If you're saying, you don't know how bad my such situation is, listen, look at Jonah. It's not this bad. <laughs> you don't know how bad my situation stinks. It doesn't stink this bad. So there's, that's the first thing. Acknowledge the consequences of running from God. Second, what do we do? How do we, how do we respond when life f- falls in on us, when God stops us in our tracks, when we're dealing with this mess that we've made because of our sin? Secondly, admit the source of your running. Admit the source of running from God. Jonah's running problem wasn't his feet. It wasn't his legs. It was what his feet and his legs were connected to, ultimately, his heart. That was really the issue. That's why we read what we do in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I think the NIV has a helpful translation of this verse. I'm going to read that. Some of you may be using the NIV. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I think verses 8 and 9 are really the key verses in the book of Jonah. They're dead center in this book of Jonah, they're right in the middle, which is very often how you can kind of the structure of Hebrew literature, Bible literature. And so what is Jonah talking about here? He uses these two concepts in verse 8. He talks about idolatry and he talks about steadfast love. So we hear idolatry. What does that make us think of in the context of Jonah? Those pagan sailors crying out to their gods, pulling out their trinkets and idols and and begging these, you know, these idols, whether they're physically held in their hands or they're thinking of these idols that they've worshipped before, they're, 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 they're on their way to Tarshish in the storm, crying out to these, praying for, to them for their deliverance. So that's what comes to mind. And then we hear this word, uh, uh, grace or steadfast love. If you know any Hebrew words, you've heard this, and if you've been here for some time, that, that Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed. It's that covenant-keeping love of God faithful, loyal love. This is God's special love for His children. And, and Israel only thought of this in terms of themselves. 
And so you've got idolatry, makes you think pagan sailors, Ninevites. You've got Hesed, which makes you think Jonah may be talking about himself as his prophet of God and for Israel. And again, he's the one praying for deliverance. Well, here's what I think is happening, and, I'm, and, and many others agree with this view. I'm not saying this is a strange view, but I think Jonah is applying the sin of idolatry to all people, including himself. So he, he is talking about himself, even as a prophet of God. So, you, so you're saying Jonah is an idol worshiper? Well, had he been worshiping God in any real, meaningful, practical way here? No. Well, what alternative does that leave then? There's, is, is there really such thing as neutrality when it comes to worship? No. All sin ultimately began as an idolatry. And so this, this is the source of, of Jonah's running his sin. And you, you may have trouble seeing it that way in your own life as you, as you think about your life. That's not idolatry. I don't have any gold statues that I'm bowing to or you know, trinkets that I'm praying to and offering sacrifices to. But listen, an idol is anything you love more than God. Anything you trust more than Him. Anything you want more than Him. Martin Luther, great reformer, said, To whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. So God has made us worshiping being, beings and we're, we will either worship and serve Him or we will worship and serve something else. And so a fundamental question in the Bible is this, what, who, what will you worship? And this is, I think, Jonah's kind of facing this in, in this fish. I have, I, I am, I'm as guilty as these, idolat- these pagan sailors were. There's idolatry in my own heart. And he's going to turn on this, but but just some questions to ask. You think of the idols in your own life. Let me listen quick. What can you not live without? So help us kind of identify those things that we want, love, serve. What can you not live without? What do you feel you need in order to be happy? What are you envious of that others have that you don't have? What do you stay up late at night worrying about losing? What do you, what do you wake up in the morning thinking about and dreaming about? What would you have a hard time giving up for a month or maybe even a year? What are you bitter about having lost? What is the one thing you would say, without blank, life isn't really worth living? How do you define success? What are you most proud of in your life? What are your accomplishments? What do you, what do you want to be known for? What do you talk about all the time? What do you spend most of your time and your money on? Where do you run for comfort? What do you escape to when life gets tough? It's just some of some questions that kind of help us see, oh Lord, where where do the idols in my own heart linger? Many times our idols in themselves are not in and of themselves are not bad things. They're good things, but we turn them into ultimate things. They're good things, but we want to make them God things. And that's not what they're intended to be. And so Jonah here, he's functioning like an idolater. Whether or not it's true of his hands, it's true of his heart. And I think this is what he's admitting here. And so, in, as Scripture says, those who cling to worthless idols, they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. They, they cling to them. What, is it, what does it mean to, to cling to idols? 
There's a, there's a helpful parallel and, or, or uh, cross-reference as we think of this. And if you do a little word study, that word cling, it, the, this word is used elsewhere and translated a different, place, different ways in different places. In Psalm 127, for instance, Psalm 127, verse 1, this word uh, translated cling in Jonah 2.8 is, is translated this way. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Watches watchman. Both the same from the same word, we translate clean here. So what does it mean? What, how does that help us? It means to, to watch, to focus on. Set your eyes on. Set your heart upon. This is the idea of it. Jonah got his gaze off God. He, he took his eyes off the joy of submitting to the word of the Lord. And instead his focus shifted away to his plans, to his desires, to his ambitions, to his thoughts about his agenda. And so it was the idolatry of Jonah's heart that led to the running of his feet. He needed to come to the place of admitting this about his own heart. Was it easy for him to admit? No. That's why I think he's in there three days before he comes to this place. So, listen, one, a good question as we try to understand this, and there are, again, there are different ways of understanding verse 8, but I think a good question of interpretation here is to ask, how did God intend for this passage, this book, this chapter to affect, to make an impact on Israel? This was the original intended audience. How, what was God's intentions? If we're going to apply it properly to ourselves, we can't just jerk it out of context and try to, try to bring it into the present. No, we got, have to understand what was going on back then. So Jonah ministered in the late 700s B.C., and God's chosen nation was divided. So you had Judah to the south, Israel to the north, and so Jonah's ministering in the, in the north, in Israel. And so here, here's God's chosen nation, though, divided from one another, fighting one another, at odds with one another. So the nor- northern kingdom where Jonah is ministering, they established their own system of worship, their own place of worship. This is not good. And so in, in the book of Jonah, what we see is what Jonah is doing as a person, Israel was doing as a nation. That's, I think, helpful in interpreting even the book of Jonah. Were they going after idols? You better believe they were. Second Kings 17, these are verses that describe why Israel would be conquered by Assyria and why they would go into captivity in, in, in about 50 years after Jonah's ministry. In Second Kings 17, verse 13, the Lord warned, warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. In verse 14, But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant and, and that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. And they went after false idols and became false And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be do like them. Verse 16, And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. In verse 22, skip down, The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So, okay, so that's, I think that helps us. I think that's what's going on. Jonah is 
case in point of what Israel, Jonah's a picture of what Israel is as a nation. And what's the point for us? If you want to get out of the mess that you're in that's been caused by your sin, you've got to acknowledge the consequences of running from him. You've got to admit the source of that running. It's, it's the idolatry of your heart, and that's not a small thing. Maybe you're thinking, yes, this, is, this Jonah, he was really bad. Israel was really bad. Thank you for pointing that out, Justin. That's very interesting. But we're not just here to talk about Jonah and Israel. Um, this has to do with us too. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So this verse is telling us why God recorded these Old Testament events for us as New Testament believers. And now this particular verse is talking about a different episode in the Old Testament, but the principle is the same. So he says, now these things, took, again, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. So this idolatry business has everything to do with us. I think... Just look back at some of the ways that we talked about earlier that you might be running from God today. And think about what's going on in your heart as that source of running. So maybe you're running from an opportunity to bear witness for Christ. Sin of omission, but it reveals something in your heart. Maybe I've been worshiping my pride, worshiping my reputation, rather than really worshiping God. So I will not speak up. And I come up with all kinds of excuses why it would be better to be quiet than to, to give witness to Jesus Christ. If I can acknowledge that today, that's huge. It's not everything, but it's big. Or maybe you're running from God by refusing to be reconciled to a, uh, another person in your life. Maybe say, I've, I've been worshiping the idol of myself and my uh, desire to be right in every situation to be thought well of rather than worshiping God. Again, it's good to admit that before it goes any further. Our idols will all eventually fail us. You know this. They will disappoint us. They get us into all kinds of messes, just like they did Jonah. They do us as well. Tim Keller says that there are four possible responses when to disappointed idolatry when our idols fail us. We can do one of four things. He says you can blame the idol, blame yourself, you can blame the world, or you can turn to God. That's what we need to do. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, if I see the idolatry in my heart, the only explanation is I was made for another world. It ought to drive us to him. Every time our idols fail us, we say, God, you, you never fail. You never fail. So we, we acknowledge the consequences of running from God. If we're, if we're going to respond rightly to, uh, to the mess that, our, that we're in because of our, uh, our sin, we, we acknowledge the consequences. We admit the source of that running from God. And then third and finally, we recognize the opposite of running from God and do it. Verse 9, but, with the voice, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he promises to sacrifice with thanksgiving. He, he comes with a voice of thanksgiving and promises to God that he would, he would do whatever he is, whatever he's supposed to do. 
He admits that salvation is from the Lord. And so God, we'll see, restores him to this place of service and of potential effectiveness and, and blessing. And then verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. <laughs> the text doesn't say on which beach Jonah was puked up upon. Um, I think, and most think, that this was God used the fish as a means of getting Jonah back probably to Joppa, that area where he could go on to Nineveh. So it was a trans- God's transportation plan for Jonah uh, to get back. Not quite as comfortable as sleeping on the boat when he was running. Uh, this is what the Lord used. Now, I, again, another, another funny picture here. I just pictured some fishermen sitting along the beach there, and, and this giant fish comes up to the shore and just you know throws up this pile. And out of this pile comes this man, bleached skin, probably no hair left, walking off towards Nineveh, but anyway, that's me. Um, well, we have this prayer in chapter 2. I think it's here. It helps us, to, again, to know how to respond when, when those times when God stops us in our tracks, like he did Jonah. When our lives fall apart because we're running from God. Now, does Jonah come out of this fish, a new man, on fire for God, ready to, ready to be a missionary now? Not exactly. There's still a lot of work to be done in Jonah and with him. His hatred for the Ninevites still remains. He's still bitter at God. His heart, as John Calvin says, is is still an an idol factory and it's, it's still pumping him out. It's good that Jonah is grateful for God's deliverance. That's a good thing, and we've been looking at it, and it's commendable. It's good that he turns to God when, when God stops him in his tracks, and, and, and he's in this bind, this mess. It's good that he comes out and he obeys the word of the Lord and does go to Nineveh and, and call out against them. Those are good things. He will obey because he doesn't want to get back in the belly of the fish. But he's not going to be real happy about it. There's still, there's still work to be done. God God is pursuing you, and He's not just pursuing your duty, He's pursuing your delight in Him. And and He's not done with Jonah, He's not done with you and me, thankfully. Praise God, there's a Jonah 2, and a Jonah 3, and a Jonah 4. We get to keep going here. Because we're a mixed bag too, aren't we? I know that's what we want to do with Jonah 2. Is this a good prayer, or is it a bad prayer? Well... Yes and no. Um, isn't this how it is? Are, are we ever like perfect repentance? Perfect turning and now everything's just amazing. No, that's not how it is. We get caught in our sin. We find ourselves in a mess of our own making because of our disobedience to God. And we get, we get caught and, and, and we call out to God and ask Him to help us. And He does. But those idolatrous desires still remain and still need to be addressed. So Jonah now, he knows how stupid it is to run from God. He can't get away with it. But he still needs to learn to love like God loves. And God's not done with him. He's not going to stop pursuing him. And he won't stop pursuing you. We've been saying we are Jonah. I am Jonah. We also said last week that in a different way, Jesus is Jonah. We saw some of the comparisons and contrasts and some of these that Jesus himself talked about. Let me add another one. What is Jonah 2? What does this prayer in Jonah 2 sound like if you think of the life of Christ? 
Sounds similar to Gethsemane. Jesus prayed along these lines. He went down into the deep. He had the weeds of sin wrapped around his neck and the bars of death closing around him. And even he goes to the cross and what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The truth is that I'll probably never have to go through what Jonah went through because Jesus went through what he went through. (laughs) Seeing, Seeing what Christ went through should provoke repentance in me when I run from him. Romans 2, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not bare-knuckled repentance. It's heart-change repentance. That's what he wants. Being put in the belly of the fish can coerce obedience. And maybe that's happened in your life, your version of that. But seeing Jesus who went into the belly of of God's wrath for you is what creates holy desires in our hearts. And that's what he really wants. We should see Jonah and be warned. We should see Jesus in Jonah and worship. That's what we want. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. God, as we've been praying already this morning, Lord, do search our hearts. Test our thoughts. See if there's any unrighteous way in us, God. Lead us in the way of everlasting. Way everlasting. Oh, give us, um, give us an awareness of any ways in which we might be running from you, any idols that might be fueling our feet. And help us, God, to turn, to, to run from those things that we've been running to pursue um, what you've called us to do. Help us, Lord. You know our hearts. You know how prone we are to wonder. Uh, but we, we need you, Lord. Give us help to, to, to resolve that today. In Jesus' name, amen.